Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. Would you please stand this morning for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, would you speak this morning into all the various situations that each person in this room faces today? Would you give your spirit to a people who are very much in need of him? We do need you today. We do need your help. Cast your light upon this text so that we can see your truth clearly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What kind of things make you afraid? Depending on your age, I suspect you may give a very different answer. Um, I would give a very different answer today than I would have given... 30 years ago. When I was a kid, I was afraid that there would be something under the edge of my bed when I get up, every time I would get up. Every time I got up, I was sure that something was coming out to get me. Um, and that never happened. But that's probably because I didn't have a meaner or older sibling. Um, when I was a teenager, I was afraid girls would not want to talk to me. Fear realized. Um, when I was in college, my, my fears became a little more grown up. After a while, I started to think to myself, how will I ever pay off these student loans? That's a real fear. The answer is never. Um, As a married man, uh, my fears are even more grown up now. Uh, Generally, instead of thinking about myself, I'm thinking about my kids. Are my kids safe and sound? Do they trust in Jesus? Um, You know, what is that fluttering I feel in my chest? The answer is it's probably anxiety. Um, maybe, Maybe you've seen the news Uh, You probably have. If you didn't hear anything in the news and you just heard me speak when we first did the announcements this morning, maybe now you are concerned about flu or coronavirus. Um, You know, I can't speak to every fear that could possibly exist this morning in this place. My suspicion is there are as many fears as there are people. Um, Either you're anticipating something happening or you're in the middle of something that you feel like you can't see your way out of. If you're afraid or if you're anxious, you have something in common with the disciples here this morning. Because in this passage, they are afraid. They are afraid. The thing that defines this passage, the thing that defines this event, that very much touches on the subject of our fear and what God plans to do, is this moment with Jesus and the disciples as they are in this boat, as they are in the midst of fear, and as Jesus brings his answer to them on the water. 
And the question, of course, is what is Jesus' answer to fear? Between the storm, between the the wind, between the waves, between the the ghostly figure on the water, what is Jesus' answer to the truly upsetting events that they face and that we face? Well, to begin with, we see Jesus himself is the answer. And we see him in three different ways, functioning in three different ways this morning. We see him as the temptation killer, which is our first point. We see him as the sea walker. I wish I had a better word for that. And the second point. And then finally, we see him as the fear stealer. In the third point this morning. It is through knowing Jesus better that our fear is stolen away and that we are enabled to face even the truly terrifying moments of life with a sort of holy perspective, which we very, very much need. And so first this morning, we see Jesus, the temptation killer. Uh, If you just look at the passage as it's written, hopefully you have the same question that I had as I was preparing this lesson, because I, I... was writing in the margin of my paper, and the thing I was wrote in the margin was this, how odd it is that they left behind Jesus. That's what I kept thinking. Why did they leave Jesus behind? Surely they know that, they need, that he needs a boat to get across, right? Um, I find that, found that a little strange. And so I did a little study, and it doesn't take very much, because you actually find out the why. You find out the why of their departure without Jesus. But John doesn't tell it to you. If you just went by the Gospel of John, all you're left with is wondering, why would they leave without Jesus? All John says is, they got into the boat and they went to the other side. We find the answer in Matthew 14, because this same event takes place in Matthew 14. And in Matthew 14, 22, we find out that Jesus told them to go. John didn't tell us that Jesus sent them. Matthew tells us, That Jesus sent them. Now that leads to another question. Jesus sends them across the water. Why would he do that? Surely he knows that he needs to go with them, right? Why would Jesus send the disciples in a boat to the other side when he didn't have a boat? Was he just setting them up because he knew that he was going to walk to them on the water and he knew this was how it was supposed to happen? Well, that could be part of the answer. Part of the answer could actually be that Jesus is setting them up so that he can walk to them on the water because he knows he's going to walk on the water. Um, But I think there's another answer. In this moment, Jesus was removing them from temptation by sending them to the other side. Now, there's a reason I call this section Jesus the temptation killer, and it's because the disciples are literally fleeing across the water at the instruction of Jesus. The question is, what are they fleeing from? If Jesus is actually sending them away from temptation, what is the temptation they're fleeing? You find the answer in the passage right before. Because think about what we saw last Sunday. Last Sunday, you had the feeding of the 5,000. You have Jesus realizing that these people want to make him king because they're so excited by this ability that he has to make bread. And, and then John told us, he said, perceiving that he was about to t- come and take, they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So what does Jesus do? He sends the disciples away. Right after he realized these people were going to try to make him king. 
So do you see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's sending them away from the temptation to join him with the crowd and make him the king. And, he, and he's doing that because these disciples at this point are not ready to understand who Jesus really is. They think he's a worldly ruler, just like this crowd thinks he's going to be a worldly ruler. They still thought of Jesus in this worldly way. And you could imagine how their belief that Jesus is going to be a worldly ruler combined with the crowd's enthusiasm to make him a worldly king, would have been an incredible moment of pressure on the disciples for them to join this crowd. So what does Jesus do? He sends them away at this crucial moment. It's like he's helping them to cope with temptation by sending them away from the temptation. There's a reformed writer named Hunius. What a great name, Hunius. Um, And Hunius says this about the whole situation. He says, let us learn from this that we must not only flee from sins, but we must also flee from the opportunity to sin. For often the opportunity itself entices one to sin. And thus it is rightly said, opportunity makes the thief. I've never heard that proverb before, but what an interesting proverb. Isn't that good though? Jesus would rather remove them from the situation where the temptation is happening than watch these guys try to stand up to a temptation they aren't ready to face. They are not equipped for this. They are not ready. They do not have a healthy understanding of Christ. They're not protected from this temptation yet. Now, as as a Christian, I suspect you have learned this about yourself, that you do have to run from opportunities to sin. You think of moments like Joseph in the house of Potiphar, right? And Potiphar's wife makes advances upon Joseph. He doesn't just say no to her, but he actually flees from the house and gets out of there. And maybe you have discovered in your own life that you have to do the same thing. You have to cut off not just the sin, but the opportunities to sin. Let's think about how that looks in everyday situations. Maybe you are tempted to covetousness. Maybe you are in a state of ingratitude at the moment. And you wish your situation was better. Or you find yourself wanting a better house. You, want, you, you find yourself wanting better things. It may be that there are certain stores or websites or TV shows that you just shouldn't watch. Watching home design shows where millionaires walk you through their gigantic multi-million dollar mansions may not be a good idea if covetousness is a problem for you, right? Maybe we need to stay away from that channel, right? Or if you can't be trusted with your phone to look at good and wholesome and righteous things, you may need to use screen time on your Apple phone to keep you on the straight and narrow and give the password to somebody you trust. You may need to put content blockers on your internet at home, Or maybe you have different temptations. Maybe you're tempted towards judgmentalism. Um, I I used to belong to a social media page on on Facebook that was exclusive to PCA, teaching elders and ruling elders. And I had to leave. I had to leave that group because I had become frustrated and judgmental toward my fellow teaching elders and my fellow ruling elders. And I had to eventually decide, you know what? The temptation to judge others is too great in this place. I have to just leave and can't be part of it anymore. Do you need to say no to yourself? Do you need to say no with regard to anything, anything at all, social media? Are there other places you need to stay away from? 
Are there places, even websites, they're not sinful, but they stoke a sinful attitude in your own heart. What are the things that are feeding sin in your life that you do need to be taking opportunities to flee from? Think about your own particular temptations that you know need to be put to death and consider what you can do to put this principle into practice, not just to flee from the sin, but to flee from the opportunity to sin. That's what Jesus does for his disciples. Let's do that as well. Let's follow the lead of our Savior here. So the disciples have fled from temptation. They've been sent away by Jesus. And as they're in the process of fleeing, we find in the narrative that trouble overtakes them, which leads to the events of our second event. Because second this morning, we see Jesus, the sea walker. Now, before that happens, John adds this interesting language in verse 17. He says, it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. This is a really interesting way that John speaks here. In Greek grammar, the word that John uses is in a really unusual case. It's the pluperfect. You don't see the pluperfect very much in, in Greek verbs in the New Testament. You see it a few times, and they apply to actions that are completed, but whose effects are felt at a time after the completion, but before the time of the speaker. So I know that sounds very specific, but what John is doing is, John is writing as someone who knows Jesus is going to come to them, and he's writing as somebody who thinks you already know this. Gospel of John was probably written after the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you notice that that John's Gospel covers events generally that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't cover. But John is intentionally covering something that Matthew and Luke have already covered. Which means John knows what the people know. And he wants you to know this story too. This is something John has decided to include in his narrative. Even though he knows you already know the story. You know, it's sort of like John is saying, he hadn't come to them on the water yet, even though you know he's about to, right? You can tell that John is telling a story that we all know, and he's very well aware of it. So then in verse 18, though, the stakes are raised. It says, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, I think this is a moment where you start to see that it would be very tempting to go all allegory here. This is Satan's assault upon the church. This is the temptations we all face that are coming upon the disciples. And, you know, you start to read the passage like a metaphor. I don't think that's a healthy way to read it. At the same time, think about what this is. This is God's people in fear and in trouble. And so in a sense, what happens here it allows us to ask the question, what should we do when we're in fear and when we are in trouble, right? It's not a metaphor, it's an actual event, but how do they cope with the event? Well, the answer is they don't cope very well, right? Here they are, the wind is strong, the waves are terrifying, the water is all around, the danger is seemingly at its highest point possible. And you could imagine maybe what this is like. I don't know if you ever go to sea very often, but uh, I always loved the idea of going to sea. I think my kids like the idea of, of getting on a boat as well. I remember John Bourgeois took us out to, uh, his, to the, the lake once and to the reservoir once. And we were about to get on the boat. And my children, who love the idea of getting on a boat, 
suddenly became completely mortified of the idea of actually stepping on the boat and actually floating on the water. Um, And you can imagine once you actually get to the water and you are floating on the water and you are surrounded by the water and you are out in the middle of it, maybe you feel a little differently than you did when you thought about being on a boat. Sometimes boats can be scary, especially if you're a little kid and you haven't been on a lot of boats. But think about this. We can sort of remember that events like this storm uh, that come upon this boat would be absolutely mortifying, absolutely terrifying to the disciples. But we are equipped to handle moments like this when we remember that even this storm happens by the providence of God. This storm that comes upon the Sea of Galilee as they're crossing it is not an accident. And in causing this storm to come, we have to face it. The storm is by the hand of God. It's by the ordination of God. What does God use the storm to do? He uses it to show them what life without Jesus is like. Because they are in the boat. Jesus is not with them. And now they are seeing in real time what it's like to live without Jesus. Zwingli says this, got all these great names, Hunius Zwingli, fantastic names. Zwingli says this, added to this bad situation was the fact that Christ was not present. When Christ is absent, there is nothing but fear and confusion. There was a, a monk during the Reformation who sort of wrote about this, and he, he spelled it out so beautifully. He, he pictures the situation for us, what happens next. And I just want to tell you the way he says it because he does it so well. He says, he says, Jesus is approaching the boat. It says, he was visible to them through the darkness of the night, treading by foot on the sea and walking on the water of the sea as if walking on the soil of the earth. Seeing him now coming close to the boat and frightened by the extraordinary strangeness of the situation, they were afraid, thinking that he was perhaps a specter or a demonic illusion of some sort that were sometimes accompanied to appear to those sailing or making a journey at night. The majority of these men, if you added up and tallied up all of the professions, what you would find is that most of them were fishermen. They were accustomed, perhaps, to telling one another stories late at night of ghostly apparitions upon the sea. This is the way that sailors spoke to one another. And Jesus, of course, as he approaches the boat, is not a ghost. He is flesh and blood. He's physical. He's real. He's as real as they are. But here's the problem in this moment. The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with them. The problem is with them. See, Jesus had done nothing wrong. He's, he's not a person they should be afraid of, and yet, and yet they are afraid. Now, whose fault is it that they are afraid? It isn't his fault. It's the disciples' fault. And there's a lesson here for each of us. It isn't unusual for Jesus to seem to us almost unfriendly when trouble's happening. Because in the midst of wind and and waves and troubles and tribulations in this life, he terrifies us. He can't. He could seem unfriendly to us and we could say, why aren't you the way I thought you are, Jesus? See, when the wind and the waves are, are going in our lives, we can be very prone to misunderstanding Jesus. You see, Jesus is always good. 
He is always wise. He is always loving. He never stops being wise and good and loving. But when the waves are happening, we might find ourselves wondering, why isn't Jesus here for me right now? Why doesn't he love me? Why does he seem so distant? Why has God rejected me? You maybe remember this. Um, Aaron and I lost two twin babies many years ago. Um, Their names were Titus and Tish. And they would probably be about 16 years old now, and we would be teaching them to drive, as hard as that is to believe. And the other day I found a journal that I had written from that time, and apparently I had decided to be very honest uh, in what I had written in that journal. And you know what's really striking about it is how I was feeling at the time. I look at that journal and I see a young man who was very angry, very confused, who demanded that God explain himself. And I did not see God clearly. I was clearly angry at him and very upset. I I did not see the grace of Christ in that moment. I did not see him clearly. Why was that? Was that because he wasn't clear? Is that because Jesus had changed? Is that because God had changed? No. I had too much pain. The, The waves were crashing. The wind was, was howling. It was blowing. The water was rising. He was there on the water. He was there with me. But all I saw was an angry, disappointing figure too mysterious to grasp in that moment. It wasn't Christ's fault that I didn't see him. It's not Christ's fault that I didn't understand him. The problem was with me. And too often that is the case. Are you in one of those moments where you know Jesus is there, but you misunderstand him or you don't appreciate what he's really like? Just understand in that moment of pain, that moment of fear, that we are prone to misunderstanding him. We're prone to misinterpreting him and what he is up to. Um, In the song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, which we're going to sing at the end. William Cooper has a line where he says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. See, we often rely on our own feeble sense to understand God and interpret the situation we find ourselves in. When all we're really able to do, if we're honest, is just trust him. That's all we can do because if we're just going by the situation, we wouldn't know what to grab onto. So all we can do is trust him. And that is often the case that that's all we have. All we can do is trust him when we're tempted not to. And so Jesus appears this morning as the sea walker. They they do perceive him, but they don't understand him. And third, this morning, we see Jesus, the fierce stealer. Galilean sailboats were not exactly deep ships that were impervious to waves. Several years ago, they found preserved, not perfectly, but preserved well in the, in the clay by the Sea of Galilee, a Galilean sailboat that, believe it or not, was 1900 years old. And when they removed it and when they excavated it, they discovered the remains of this boat. And we actually got a perfect look at what these sailboats looked like. 
And one of the things that strikes you, if you ever look it up on the internet, is how very shallow the boat is. It's a very shallow boat. And it's the sort of boat you could imagine with 12 men standing inside of it that it would not exactly feel secure to be in there. Especially if you have the wind blowing and the waves blowing. You would not feel secure in the boat. And if you did feel secure, it wouldn't be because of the boat. Well, in addition to the storm, they see this appearance of Christ. And here's the thing I want you to notice. Their fear lasts Until Jesus speaks. Until Jesus speaks, they are afraid. And you think about this from, this is from the the horse's mouth in this instance. Because John was in the boat with them. He's one of them. And so when John says, they were afraid, that's his word. They were afraid. You know it's true. Because John was there. And then Jesus speaks to them. And when he speaks to them, everything changes. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Here's what I want you to see. Until Jesus speaks, they are afraid, right? (laughs) Unless we hear his voice, we will live in the midst of our storms and our struggles, but we'll keep being afraid. This is one of the reasons why, to me, it's very important that the church meets on a day like today. Because we need to hear Jesus speak. There are very few times in our life where we are in the midst of trouble and we don't need to hear his voice. And I suspect if you listen much to the news or if you watch the TV a little bit too much, you may kind of have come into this place this morning very much afraid. And there is nothing in this world that you need to hear more than the voice of Jesus. There is something about hearing Jesus speak that changes a situation like this. The voice of Jesus makes all the difference. Now, you heard that quote from Zwingli that I shared earlier. Well, I didn't read the entire quote. I I deceptively left off the ending. Listen to what he says again. He says, when Christ is absent, there is nothing but fear and confusion. But then Zwingli says, when Christ is present, every disturbance is calm. Now, please don't see a statement like that as a cliche. Don't see a statement like that as a cliche. Because for Christians all over the world who suffer, it is not a cliche. On more than one occasion, I have known Christians in dangerous or life-threatening situations who demonstrated an immense trust in God. And sometimes it, it leaves me marveling. Um, I've spoken about a good friend of mine who was in China during the coronavirus scare during the end of the month of December. um, And he spent a month in lockdown by himself as his family had already come back and as he was left behind. And I remember he called me one morning at eight o'clock and said, hey, it's almost my bedtime. Uh, I'm on the other side of the world. And we talked for 30 minutes or so. And it was just extraordinary hearing him talk about what it's like to live in complete lockdown, not able to move, not able to go anywhere. And he said, I said, well, what is it like just living right now? And he said, I just look over at the empty bed next to me and I wonder when I'm going to see my wife again. And I wonder when I'm going to see my kids again. I wonder if I'm going to be home. I wonder if this is, this is going to be the end for me because it feels like that. And he said, I don't want to die. 
and I don't want to lose my family, but knowing that Christ is with me means I can face what's ahead. Knowing that Christ is with me means I can face what's ahead. Remember what Zwingli said, when Christ is absent, there's nothing but confusion and fear. When Christ is present, every disturbance is calmed. That is not a cliché. That is life-giving, life-sustaining, life-fear-conquering truth that we all need, especially right now. And if we don't need it now, we will need it soon. Has God been fortifying you for the suffering that will come to you one day? Now notice, I don't ask the question, are you ready? I don't ask it that way. I don't ask if you're ready because you will not know you are ready until the moment comes. But here's my question. Can you see God giving you reasons for joy, reasons for boldness, reasons to hang on when the going does eventually get tough? Has he been heaping upon you reasons for hope? Or maybe the going is tough right now. What is your anchor? Are you making use of the stability of Jesus? Or do you keep doing like the men on the ship when Jonah was at sea and just throwing everything you have at it, hoping that some trick that you pull off is actually going to work? What is your anchor? I want you to notice the disciples' answer here. It says the moment that changed everything was this. They heard the voice of Jesus. He identified himself. He he told them not to fear. And then we see that they go from being fearful to being glad. It says, they were glad, the text says. You see, all of these truths we see about knowing Christ mean that, as I said, these aren't just cliches. These are are not just religious-sounding phrases. They They are truths that we grab onto in the moment when we need them most of all. And this gladness is the fruit of seeing and hearing Jesus and letting him lift the fear from them. And it's something that God offers to you even this morning. In fact, it's something he wants for you this morning. I talked at the beginning about fear. And I talked about how fear can vary depending on your life situation. And I'm not sure what your temptation or fear is. Again, I can guess what that might be, but I don't know everything that's troubling you at the moment, but I do know this much. Christ offers an answer that is one size fits all. Think about what Jesus does in verse 20. His answer is, it is I, do not be afraid. Now he says this to a boat with 12 men in it, each of them individuals, each of them with their own thought processes, each of them with their own struggles and worries and concerns going on in their heads, all of them probably connected to the storm and all of the things we mentioned. But yet, what does Jesus do? He says one thing, and it speaks to all of them. This is the thing I notice the most about being a preacher. Sometimes I I prepare a sermon and I'm not very happy with it. And I say, well, you know what? At least it's true. Sometimes that's my bare minimum when it comes to sermons. Am I telling the truth? Maybe I am not excited about my sermon's quality, but I know that what I'm saying at least is true. That's the bar I always set when I'm preparing sermons. Is what I'm saying true or not? 
And oftentimes I'll deliver a sermon and I will know, well, I, I don't know if it was good, but I know it was true. And the thing that always surprises me is that oftentimes it's those sermons, the ones that I feel the worst about, that afterwards someone will come up to me and say, you know, I heard you saying this, and this is exactly how I know that applies to me. And in my mind I said, I never thought it would apply to that. I never expected that this one word would speak to that situation, and then I have somebody else come to me and say the exact opposite over here. You see, God has one word for his people, and what does his spirit do? He takes it and applies it to each of you in your own life situations. That's the way God works. But notice the one-size-fits-all answer that Jesus gives to them is he offers himself as the answer to the fears of the disciples. He doesn't even really offer a doctrine. He doesn't offer a promise, at least not in this moment. Instead, he just offers himself. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, I don't have a problem with propositional truths. In fact, I'm a bit of a nerd, and I like propositional truths. The Christian faith is understood in propositional terms and statements. But when you look at the experience of being a follower of Christ, you're not looking at a series of statements and facts all strung together as affirmations in life. That's not what it's like to live as a Christian. Being a follower of Jesus means knowing a person. It means knowing Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus means being saved by being united to him by faith. This is a very personal way of talking about salvation. We are united to a person, not a doctrine. Our fear is stolen away by a person, not by abstract principles. Those principles and those doctrines help us to understand these things and to understand the one that we love. But in the end, Jesus is very careful to draw our eyes directly to him personally. Don't miss this. The answer Jesus gives you this morning is himself. Now, there is a doctrinal angle I want you to see. It's not as though this is all just feelings. Jesus has a statement he makes about himself because Jesus makes this statement. He says, it is I. It is I. Now, there's a double punch to when he says this because in the Greek, this is what he says. He says, ego, I me. Ego, I me. And that means I am. This is what we call one of Jesus's I am sayings. In the Old Testament, God was known by the name I am. God told Moses, tell them that I am has sent you. That's the name that God identifies himself by when he speaks to Moses. And in verse 20, he takes that name for himself. He doesn't just say, it is I. He says, I am. Do not fear. I am. You see that comfort there? There's a double comfort here. With his own presence and the reality of who he is, he, he pairs them up. Um, here he is, and he is, I am. He is Yahweh himself. He is not distant. He is not absent. He is invested. He is here with you right now. The same wind and waves that whip against you are whipping against him as well. He is with us. And this is a passage in which I am walks across the very sea that he made by the word of his power. And he walks across it as if it were dirt. Dirt. 
This isn't an allegory, but it does remind us if he can do that with water, if he can do that with a storm, he can do that with anything that makes us tremble. He can steal your fear with his very presence. And he reminds you even this morning, whatever your situation, he is on top of it. He is not overwhelmed. He is not surprised. And he is sovereign. And he gives you his presence. So go in his peace today. Let's pray. Lord, we are prone to miss you when life's troubles are swirling around us. We tend to misunderstand you, to only see things from our own perspective, to forget you for who you really are. And so we pray this morning that you would fix our gaze on Christ so that as the troubles come, and they will, we can know him truly and have our knowledge of you as an anchor for our souls. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.